inflation slows, workers call for wages and just transition, Aston by-election, Liberal MPs injure worker, and good news about skinks. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. My name is Ben Davison. I am your co-host and joining me while wrapped in a hooded blanket with puppy Germanicus laying blissfully across her lap is the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon and On, short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults, my wife, your friend, and proud owner of a sit-down buffhead elbow t-shirt. I got an audacious t-shirt and I'm wearing it right now. You should take a photo except my hair's bad. <laughs> bad bad, I'm how are you, Van? Oh, I'm awesome. You and I are both pretty tired, I've got to say. It's that fun uh, freelance lifestyle that we both enjoy so much. What a great time of the year, March and April are, aren't they, Ben? Yeah, there's a lot going on. Super great. But uh, I want to make a recommendation out of the gate. The Conservatives in America have spent a lot of time trying to ban a book called Gender Queer by an author called Maya Kababe, who's a non-binary asexual author. The book is about uh, M. They use the pronoun M coming out and talking about sexuality and it's an awesome book like it's just really good and for people to struggling to get their head around you know what is non-binary what is genderqueer what do all these words mean it's fantastic and the conservatives have really really they i mean they they it's getting pretty frightening in america and i always think if somebody's trying to ban a book you should buy it so no one can ban it yeah absolutely uh, interesting. Conservatives in America, quick to ban books, very slow to ban guns. Yep. Uh, and as sadly we've seen uh, this week. I mean, children can't read bad books if they're dead, can they, Ben? No. And sadly we've seen this week that uh, it's it, guns are still remain far more deadly than the written word. There was a congressional representative from Tennessee, a state which has just outlawed drag. It has just made drag illegal. Right. And this representative said of of the assault mm. weapons, oh, we, we're not going to fix it. No. no Literally more it. prepared for children to die than for drag performers or trans people or anyone who doesn't fit their extremely weird, unnatural binary conception of humanity to exist. Indeed. Closer to home. What a week. Closer to home. There's, you know, there's actually quite a lot of good news in the episode this week. So I want to focus in on uh, what seems like a strange thing to call good news, but inflation has only gone up by 6.8%. Hooray! What fun! <laughs> now, th- that is that is good news because the expectation was that it would go up by 7.2%, uh, and, of course, last month it went up by 7.4%. Are you loving not living in England, though? Yeah, where inflation is in double digits and getting worse. <laughs> And in fact, I saw there's an article by Gordon Brown today that talks about uh, uh, hygiene poverty and people not showering or brushing their teeth or even using toilet paper because they can't afford it, uh, which I just, I, I saw snippets from that article and I just went, wow. Yeah, it used to be an empire. Used to be an empire. Yeah, karma's got you good, UK. 
Oh, it's awful. I mean, let's be. I, I want to be very clear. I'm joke. I'm joking because we know that imperialism only benefits the people at the top. Yeah. The people who are living in hygiene poverty have always been victims of imperialism when they're whether they're in the imperialist country or not. So yeah, I mean, it is absolutely outrageous. In Australia, of course, things are not so bad. No, and in fact, things are seemingly getting better. Uh, there is there is some some good news here that look the, there's been a lot of economic instability uh unemployment remains low uh, around 3.5% uh the inflation figures are lower as i said than than the market had expected so the market had predicted they'd be around 7.2 7.2 and instead they are 6.8 now, there's, which is down on the January figures. Yes, which was 7.4. Now, it's always hard to tell what the high priests of neoliberalism that run the RBA will do in any given month, uh, but there is some Is it? Because I thought it was just about benefiting rich people. Or am I am I looking at the wrong pattern book? No, no. Well, it's hard. Oh, but how can we make rich people feel more confident? I think the problem they're having at the moment is what will benefit rich people the most is probably what's in question. Oh, that's a hell of a board meeting, isn't it? What will benefit them the most? Given the instabilities in the banking systems of Europe and the US, given rising interest rates, given rising inflation, but slowing rises in inflation, given high levels of employment and non uh, we're not seeing these, you know, wage spiral outbreaks that they're so keen to constantly try and scare us into not demanding. Oh, I don't know, wages that keep up with the cost of living. But we are seeing price gouging, Ben. Oh, we're seeing lots of price gouging. Sixty-nine uh, percent of inflation remains due to increases in prices, simply to increase profits. Look, we are seeing uh, lots of Lots of conflicting information, which makes it hard for your average punter, right? Uh, yeah, EY's- hard for the average punter, but for you, Ben, with your fancy education, a lot of amusement. Yeah, look, I mean, it's it's not it's not it's not funny because there are genuine there's genuine suffering in the economy, particularly anyone who uh, has fixed income or has to try and pick up extra shifts to make those mortgage payments. We, you know. People's mortgage payments have gone up by you know thirty percent, you know fifty percent in some cases. We're going to see uh, over the course of the next uh, six to eight weeks, literally hundreds of thousands of people come off much lower fixed rate interest uh, on their mortgages that they locked in when they were told that interest rates wouldn't go up. Uh, they're now going to have a big, big jump. And these are people who locked in high levels of debt at an interest rate that they thought when they came off the fixed rate might be a little bit higher, but certainly not 30 to 50% higher. Yeah, not 10 consecutive interest rate hikes higher. That's right. So the big like question- Like 10 is a lot. Well, it's a record, right? So the, the question now is, will there be an 11th? And that's where there's a divided opinion because, you know, uh, Greg Jericho from The Guardian has said that uh, inflation has peaked and is starting to come down. In the US, we're seeing inflation coming down. Obviously, in the UK, it's a different story. <laughs> uh, but there are other factors in the UK. And this is the thing. 
no one country's experience of inflation is the same as another's. There are different supply. Wait, ben, Ben, stop. Are you saying that localised regulatory environments have impacts on economic effects? Oh, absolutely. Wow, that's so crazy. You mean that governments and government policy actually determine what economic events might might look like and the impact they might have and how different populations in the community might experience them? I, I think that given that there are some people in the UK not using toilet paper, uh, while we still have bountiful supplies here, despite the momentary panics of the pandemic, suggests that yes, actually, if you decide to uh, literally uh, cripple your own industrial capacity by cutting yourself off from the rest of the world, that will have a negative impact. If you decide, as Australia has done, as we have uh, just this week passed a, a sovereign manufacturing fund uh, and invest in workers and invest in supply chain, you can mitigate inflation. And in fact, Australia's inflation has generally, during this global period of increased inflation, tracked slightly lower because, because we changed government in May and we changed the emphasis in our economy away from simply maximising profit to what would be in the interests of, oh, I don't know, the citizens of the Commonwealth. But Ben, 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 that seems to imply that the invisible hand of the market, which is the the overriding mythos, the god of neoliberalism, as as it would is, you know, not a reliable mechanism for ensuring shared prosperity. Well, look, I think any time you've got a Gosh. cloistered group of mostly men together. Mostly a- white men together. Mostly <laughs> white, straight-acting or pretending, privately educated rich men. Together in a uh, dimly lit room once a month to interpret various signs before deciding, <coughs> before deciding the fates of <laughs> millions of people, you, you generally have something that is more usually described as a religion than an economic <laughs> policy. And that's basically what central banks have become <laughs> since the monetarist um, revolution. Oh, humanity has learned nothing. Two and a yeah. half thousand years. I mean, you know, the monetarist revolution was a revolution without AK-47s, but it certainly wasn't without violence uh, down the track. Uh, to be fair, in Chile, I think you'll find rather a lot of AK-47s were Yeah, well, there you go. So, look. You know, guy, everybody knows that, right, guys? Like Pinochet was backed by neoliberal economists like Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman, yeah, that's Who right. were like, yeah, who went down there after he had, uh, you know, um, been in, involved somehow in the mysterious murder of Salvador Allende, the democratically elected uh, president of Chile, who happened to be a socialist. The Pinochet government was backed by neoliberals. Friedman went down there and they were like, oh, this is great. We can just run our free market economy here because it's under dictatorial control. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, that's, I mean, yeah, that's a logical extension of what those guys thought. I mean, Freedom to choose, except not. Well, when you think about it, monetary policy and the way that it's been constructed, you know, since that sort of era uh, is not democratic, you know. It, no, it isn't. <laughs> Phil, Phil, Phil Lowe sits around a boardroom with a bunch of people 
uh, who were appointed on you know five year terms by the previous government, determining the uh, way that money will work in the economy that this government has to try and somehow manage. Ah, the policies of yesterday today. Well, absolutely. And look, it raises genuine problems, like real-world problems, not just mortgages, but you then talk about the problems with rents. You talk about the problems with housing supply. If money is expensive and it's hard to get a mortgage, then yes, it's harder to build more housing. You know, there's all sorts of issues that stem from it. Especially in a country where unlike, for example, the Scandinavian economies, the government doesn't have direct control over the supply of housing or or energy or anything else. Like if you let markets set prices, they set prices to maximise profits. Yeah, absolutely. And of course- That that should be pretty, pretty obvious actually. So if you want the government to have more control over certain markets, you have to let the government own like the, the infrastructure of those markets. And we've seen Wow. And we've seen Well, you and I really get it. we're basically, you know, pagan sect in this uh, I know, in this economy. Well, we've seen the Albanese Labor government, you know, try and pass a housing future fund and there's been resistance to it. People saying it doesn't go far enough. It's this it's this old argument, right? Like we can get into and I don't intend to get into it today because there's so much for us to talk about. But these are the last two sitting weeks before the budget week. Uh, obviously, the Manufacturing Future Fund uh, was passed. Uh, the, um, uh, the, the climate uh, policy was passed uh, once the Greens decided that, yes, they would accept a hard cap on emissions as part of that. Uh, there's still some debate around housing. But, look, one of the things that happens when inflation goes up is it the Greens block housing policy? No, no, wait. No, no, they just always do that. Well, CF certainly Victoria. Yep, continue, Ben. Is that wages have to keep pace. And this is what this is what Phil Lowe and the bosses have been objecting to since the start of this inflation crisis, right? And I call it a crisis that they created. It, was a, it is a supply crisis. Make no mistake, the inflation problems, we've said it before, I'll say it again, has happened because there has been a lack of supply and too much profiteering in the system. People have taken, when I say people, I mean corporate executives and corporations have taken advantage of the pandemic to jack up prices and the the nature of the way neoliberal economies work is that supply chains, once disrupted, take a long time to put back into place. Now, what we're seeing is workers saying, well, this is not good enough. We've gone backwards in real terms for a long time now. And in fact, we're starting to see a real call for a real increase in the minimum wage to keep pace with the cost of inflation. And if you're not a member of your union, this episode is going to be heavy on why you should join because the first reason is obviously for wages. In Australia, the union movement, this is something the union movement, by the way, does not make a dollar from, does not make a dime from, but the union movement is responsible for putting the case and arguing the case for the minimum wage every single year to the Fair Work Commission in the face of staunch resistance, not just from bosses and corporate executives, but their lobbyists, the boss's pamphlet, the AFR, runs piece after piece oh, about how any Australian increase- Australian front page- 
Ah, how dare the lowest paid workers in the economy ask for enough money to live on? And it's an outrage. And every year they say that it will cost jobs and tank the economy. And you know what happens every year? It doesn't. It doesn't. Of no. course it doesn't. In fact, we've got some of the lowest rates of unemployment this country has seen in generations. We have some of the highest rates of profit that this country has seen in generations, and yet workers are going backwards in real terms. So, of course, Sally McManus, leader of the ACTU, has said that the principle that they should be supporting is an increase that maintains the real value of the wages of low-paid workers. And she's talking about the government. So there have been hints from Tony Burke, who's the uh, Minister for Employment, Industrial Relations, the Arts, a bunch of stuff. Um, he has he said in an interview with RN that Labor has always supported um, increases to minimum wage. The Prime Minister has clarified Labor doesn't put a figure forward, but Labor certainly supports the principle that the lowest paid workers in the economy should have wages that keep pace with inflation. And that's reassuring, actually. Yeah. So that was a pretty big hint dropped by Minister Burke. And it is really interesting, though. Like I found a couple of quotes reading up about this. I mean, I'd love to pretend I'd just wing it, but I don't. Um, there were just some really revealing insights into how uh, how the other side yeah. conceive of what's going on at the moment. Um, EY's chief economist, Sherelle Murphy, said, with inflation remaining uncomfortably high, a resilient labour market and business conditions sitting above pre-COVID levels, there is still a case for further rate hikes. This is them talking about raising interest rates again to take the heat out of the economy. Mm -hmm. But I want you to just understand that when they talk about a resilient labour market, to them, that's a bad thing. Yeah, that's Oh, too many people are in work. This is outrageous. If all these people have jobs, how will we fire them more easily? How will we discourage them from making wage claims based on what their labour is worth and getting a a, a share of the profits that we make as corporations? Yikes! Well, then KPMG's uh, Chief Economist in Australia, Brendan Ryan, said that KPMG believes inflation is still sufficiently high and employment too strong. Too strong. Too strong for the RBA to call a halt to the cash rate rises. Uh, you know, this idea. <laughs> I'm from Wollongong. Look, I grew up with horrendous levels of mm. especially youth unemployment around me. I ended up on the dole. I had hysteresis, the whole mm, experience mm. in the 90s, you know, which which wasn't as bad as the 80s, which is incredible. Like the idea that employment could ever be too strong, I'm just like, just what kind of luxury have you lived in, Brendan? And, and can I just say that this is this is the uh <sighs> this is the dichotomy. This is the split personality of of that mindset is that they they argue against the minimum wage increase because it will reduce employment and they that's the argument they pull forward that's yeah, the notion yeah. oh argument. well we'll that's have to the, let if we raise wages we're going to have to let the, people that's go that's the public argument right? right at the same time they they make the argument we need to increase interest rates because we need more unemployment right so so what they at the end of the day, all of it, all of it 
all of the arguments that get put forward by is a pretext for rich people to become even richer and enjoy the status of their being poor people and ordinary people driven into poverty so they can really feel more rich. And it's that's really it, isn't it? it that's absolutely it's all relative it. because how much more can you possibly eat or buy? Like, let's look at how some of these people live. You know, the luxury yachts and the, the, yeah. the you know, do you know a house sold in Australia last year for $65 million? That's a lot of money. What are you going to do with this $65 million worth of house? Like, seriously, <laughs> like how much more fun could it possibly be than any other house? Uh, it's not 65 know. times more fun than a million-dollar house. And and this is the issue. Like it's all just about maintaining a system where for them to feel like they really are rich despite the fact they can afford all this just nonsense garbage that's destroying the environment anyway, that other people have to be absolutely miserable because otherwise you just can't enjoy it. And, you know, it's fundamentally a good reason to join your union, right, because <laughs> the union movement exists and has always existed because working people deserve better than that they deserve we deserve a system that actually puts the needs of everyday working people at the center the results in new south wales at the state election over the weekend indicate that australians still believe in that core concept of the figure even in even in neoliberal new south wales there is still hope that a beating heart of an australian community and you should be joining your union you can go to australianunions.org.au/wow that's W-O-W for week on Wednesday. You can join right now while you're listening to the rest of this podcast. Then I want to transition into a discussion uh, about Michelle O'Neill, president of the Australian Trade Union Movement, gave a national press club speech this week, uh, which I think it's really worth us touching on because it goes to these points around what kind of an economy we have, right, and what kind of an economy we need to have. You know, you raise the point around the the uber wealthy, the super wealthy and their environmental impact. Well, of course, we want to transition the economy uh, from an extractive to a circular economy. We want clean energy. Well, let's be clear about what that is. Okay, an extractive economy is we take things out of the ground, you know, like at enormous environmental cost and polish them up and sell them off and then they become waste in the environment. That's how we've done. That's the industrial revolution model of doing things. Yeah. A circular economy is dealing with that waste and going, what can we make from this waste? How can we stop this waste being waste? Rather than digging things up, making something new every time, destroying the planet, we take what we've already got and we reprocess it and we repurpose it, reduce, reuse, recycle, and keep these resources in the economy. And a shout out to the new chair of Circular Australia, which is the organisation that advocates for a circular economy, who is my friend and yours. Terry Butler. Terry Butler. Um, and, of course. Oh, what, an actual <laughs> environmentalist doing environmental things? <laughs> Incredible. Well, well, what we've seen over yes, we <laughs> love multiple, multiple attempts to make clean energy transitions and circular economy transitions and, and generally decarbonise the economy is this debate put forward that somehow or another it's a choice between keeping the old way of doing things uh, and having jobs or doing things in a new way and destroying all the jobs. And that argument 
for a long time in Australia has really divided the community. Right? And lost Labor the 2019 election when a bunch of hippies in Teslas decided they would drive around regional Queensland until people in traditional mining communities that were facing youth unemployment of 20% and Indigenous unemployment of 30%, that it was really wrong to want jobs, even though they had been promised jobs if the Adani mine went ahead. Now, let me be very clear. I don't support the Adani mine. I don't support Gupta Adani, a person who has exposed his workers to cholera in various industrial sites around the world, and I'm not making that up. I've written about it. But the argument against Adani was not, why are you so greedy for wanting a job and a livable income? The argument against Adani was there are cleaner, better, safer jobs that we can build in other capacities and make them more local and not have to have, you know, FIFO experiences, a localised, decentralised energy economy, something that we can, must, should build and is better for workers and communities. That's the argument we should have had. Absolutely. And that's the argument that Michelle O'Neill has put forward in this National Press Club speech about why we need a just transition authority. And, you know, there's a letter that's been signed on by dozens of organisations, community organisations, environmental organisations, unions, obviously, uh, superannuation funds, other investment funds, like a whole range of organisations who go, actually, we want the hundreds of thousands of jobs that could be created in a new clean economy that has at its core the interests of workers and communities rather than at its core the interests of particular fossil fuel companies who maybe are just looking to squeeze the last dollar out of the pit that they've already dug. But Ben, the $65 million house. Yeah, well, I mean, this is this is the... Like, can you really enjoy it unless, you know, somebody's dying of black lung disease in regional Queensland? Really? Can well, you enjoy it? Well, I think you can, and I think we should. And, you know, Michelle made the, the, this point. I want to quote this. Do traditional energy communities have to carry all the risk, letting the transition hollow them out and cast them aside with blue-collar workers, their families and communities left holding the bag? And when, when she says holding the bag, I think, you know, that really means not just in terms of they're going to be out of work, but it is those health repercussions. It is those environmental repercussions because we've seen time and time again that these companies, often foreign-owned, often managed by foreign asset managers. Cholera. They, they, close, Cholera. they close these facilities down. With an average notice time, and you found this information. I mean, I was stunned. Yeah, this is in Australia. This is in Australia. This is the 11 coal-fired power plants that have been closed between 2013 and 2020 were closed with just four months' notice, just four months' notice. Now, different state governments I know have put in place laws to try and prevent this, but there's, there's, they're fairly limited in what they can do as a state government, right, because some of these corporations exist at a national level, some of them exist at an international level, and states are obviously bound by their state jurisdictions. Like, it's a complex policy area, and Michelle O'Neill has made this pitch for just transition authority involving tripartite participation from government, business, and unions. Imagine. And government, God, business, wild. and unions say this is a good idea. Yeah, and because they, <laughs> because everybody is threatened by climate change. But I get so frustrated with the whole living in the ground. I mean, we've just got to stop, like, all oil and gas, like, now and I'm like all right love how's this I'm going to go to your parents and tell them 
all of their wealth, all of their income, all of their resources, including the value of their house, is going to be worth nothing in four months' time. Four months. In four months, everything you have now will be gone because this is what happens when like coal-fired power stations or, mm-hmm. you know, various forestry projects, any of these things that we know are bad. Everybody knows they're bad. People who listen to this show know that I'm a light-in-the-eyes environmentalist. It was how I got politicised. It will always, always be my overriding concern. But let us just look at the impacts of having a conversation with the community where you say this this coal-fired power station is going to close, meaning that your job is over, and you might be older and your skills might be entirely focused in that industry. And maybe your local TAFE has been closed down and opportunities for retraining, you'll have to cover yourself. And you've got kids and you've got elderly parents and you're part of a community where you are trying to function. Mm. Mm. Now, if that industrial site, and we know in Australia the model is the industrial site is usually staffed by men, mm. but the subsidiary industries in the town around it are usually staffed by women, mm. the teachers, the nurses, the cleaners, the people who work in retail, the people who run the local laundry, right? Hospitality. Hospitality. All of these are dominated by women. When the industrial site closed down, all those subsidiary industries, they vanish as well Mm. because if nobody's getting covered in coal dust all the time, you what do you need a laundry for? Mm. Like why do you need Mm. that that kind of – so that that closes down. These are the compounding effects. And we've seen this in this country again and again. People who are scrap-heaped, like when mm. an industrial site closes in a, in Australia, a third of those people never work again. A third of them end up working for what f- less than half of mm. what they earned previously, mm. and a third of them do manage to get jobs in other areas or jobs somewhere else to transfer. I mean, these are huge. But also the value of your house vanishes overnight because the, the value of the house, which is generally based on proximity to a large piece of industrial infrastructure, well, that industrial infrastructure doesn't exist anymore. So your house is worth nothing. So you have people stranded with mortgages and unemployment and, you know. Well, they the- can't just – and if your house is suddenly worth less than the mortgage that you are on it, it's not like you can just sell it and go and work somewhere else. No. So you end up <laughs> anchored into this, you know, really entrapped position. And, and you know, I think it's really important that we talk about the the complexity of uh, of our economy um, and the fact that you know government helped build these energy assets and and a lot of them have been sold off now right that's been a big debate obviously New South Wales has just had the debate around privatization but these carbon emission intensive industries the infrastructure of the carbon problem was yeah, built by government that's right and yeah it and wasn't a free market that no, built those things we we so. wanted these things we wanted those power plants we wanted that coal dug out of the ground because we wanted that infrastructure to, to be part of a modern industrial economy yeah yeah and, and there's a responsibility like people were generations of people were lewd is the wrong word but encouraged you know, there's newsreel footage calling them the heroes of the state of Victoria and the heroes of the state of Queensland. For us to turn on the people and abandon them and say, well, now because the board of a company based in France has decided to close down this power plant uh, and we've decided that we want to decarbonise the economy, you're scrap heaped, is just, it's an appalling thing to say. Well, this is what Michelle says in her speech. She's like... You know, there is a massive change that has to happen and we have 30 years to sort it out. Yeah. And we do. We have 30 years to basically fix everything. But there there are communities that have had 15 generations 
of participation in and like and being from Wollongong and having worked for the CFMEU there in the coal mining division, which I did and I proudly yeah. did, and gave me the industrial education of my life, like a sense of identity and tradition and community and values. These are really powerful things that that keep people connected to a sense of place, a sense of family, a sense of history. And I understand it's very difficult for middle-class people to appreciate that working-class people have traditions and values and communities and customs and behaviours and rituals, and yet they do. It's enormous. And so this idea that We'll just we'll just erase all of that, scrap up communities, leave them abandoned, ignore the contribution that was made, take away from families like generational experiences. Like we have to be kind and fair. And I think there are some really good examples here. And and the just tran- having a just transition authority is fundamentally an important part of it because. When you look at the experiences in places like Germany and Spain, the Just Transition Authority has done things like actually celebrated the contribution that those communities have made to the broader nations that they've served, right? And in Germany, I mean, they went through a very long process. Uh, Early on, they recognized that this was something they needed to do. Not one worker was made forcibly redundant in that process. Now, we, we are in a different position than that. But, you know, a just transition authority could ensure that there is actual proper notice of closures, pooled redeployment schemes. Not every, not every carbon uh, intensive asset is going to close at the same time. And some of those skills can be moved around. People are willing to take their skill sets if they're supported to do that. Um, redundancy schemes that ensure that those people who will never work again are actually able to sustain a lifestyle that is not one of absolute abject poverty. And misery. Having retraining, education investment, there are still young people in some of these industries. It's not like they stopped employing people in in the carbon emission industries yesterday. They're still employing people. Um, Having individualised labour adjustment packages so that workers have safe quality, secure jobs to go into. Well, I mean, this is what they did in Denmark, isn't it? You've yeah. talked about this before, how in Denmark in various like mechanical engineering capacities. Well, shipping, shipping is the classic example where they 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 turn shipyards into um, wind farm uh, manufacturing, you know, where suddenly you went from a very and, – and building ships and shipping itself is both high-emission industries – Building wind farm turbines, building the the blades, the uh, the generator, all of that was done by tra- transitioning those shipyards and giving those workers, upskilling those workers, or changing the skill sets of those workers who already had some skills in that area. And obviously things that we've talked about on the show before, like transition industries around like wood production, so we don't have to log. Um, mm. old forests anymore, old growth forests anymore. Looking at things like they're making wood, like wood style products out of grass that are resilient and and you know easily manipulable into all kinds of architectural marvels. Like these are alternative industries, and in fact, and encouraging alternative industries is a really important part of transition. What have what resources do we have? What can we do? 
How can we localise opportunities for a community that's been displaced from its traditional employer? And all of these things are possible. Looking at the comparison between Germany and Spain, like Germany went to some effort, the commitment that nobody would be forcibly made redundant inspired some really creative thinking, you know, one of the greatest engineering cultures that have ever existed Mm. in terms of the way that they looked at alternatives. In Spain, they did have some problems because they were like, well, we'll transition, we'll look at packages, we'll look at retraining, but they didn't necessarily pick up on the, well, what can we do here that will create employment for people? What is the alternative industry? Mm. And this, of course, is an argument for increased investment in universities and tertiary education to encourage the the invention of new products and new industries and having research that guides. And there's no coincidence that Germany runs a research-based, you know, industrial policy that they invest so heavily in education because they know that their most precious resources are, you know, the, the brains of researchers coming up with solutions to problems and and inventing things, working with industry, working with unions, working with communities. Like it's actually all part of the same thing. And we should say too, you know, just uh, as, I, as I understand it, uh, there's uh, some reviews going on this year into the way education funding works in Australia. And you, you love to talk about the Finnish model uh, and how in Finland their policy is never waste a brain. Um, and you know, in Australia, we need to improve the economic complexity, that is the number of industries, that is the different things that we do here. And to do that, you've got to have good education policy. You've got to support public education from preschool right through to PhD research and beyond um, so that you can have new and emerging industries, so that you can innovate off the back of things that your people are discovering and uncovering and making use of in new and exciting ways. I mean, don't get me wrong, Malcolm Turnbull had a lot of things wrong and certainly the way he communicated around innovation was off-putting, but it's true that you do need to be investing in driving ways for people to do things differently, better, and Actually, that's how we improve productivity rather than just doing more hours sitting at your desk or literally toiling in a mine. Well, and this is the thing, like the kind of research that goes into, you know, like alternative resources and circular products and all of these different kind of systems that we can and should use in the interest of our own survival as well as our own economic diversification. Like it's really important. And one of the things that came out in Michelle's speech where she talks about the fact that Australia is this really simplistic extractive Mm. economy that apparently industrially we're on the same level internationally as Laos and um, Niger, I think, like these. Namibia. Namibia. My apologies to the people of Niger. Namibia in terms of the fact that it's it's kind of a simplistic economy and we're not looking at those sort of complex uh, interrelations between tertiary industry and, you know, mm. resource processing, like the kind of work that goes on in places like South Korea and Japan and Germany and what are we doing? Why are we doing it? How can we do it better? What are the more things we can do? How can we target this to our current capacity? What is the capacity we need to develop? You know, that kind of future planning has been absolutely missing from like Australian federal politics definitely for the past 12 years. 
I mean, what a squandered opportunity when the pressure is on for you know the for the infrastructure of climate mitigation. But the point is, we're now, you know, we have a government that is committed to you know recognizing that climate change is an actual mm-hmm. thing and has pledged to support climate action. They are passing legislation in order to push Australian industry towards emissions reduction and net zero by 2050, all these things, all these things that should be happening. But the ambition has got to come from the people for a new economic um, a, a new economic covenant. And the- we have to make the demand about the kind of society we want to live in, high, like high education opportunity, high industrial opportunity, economic diversification. And this is why we obviously support a Just Transition Authority it's something that you know you and I have talked about many times in the past about how this infrastructure gets put in place, these policies, these these entities to coordinate and make sure that all of the things that we've just been talking about can actually happen. Because if it's nobody's job to do it, then it doesn't get done. Yeah. That's fundamentally what happens. There is no secret bureaucracy of the will intention. That's you right. Know, just because you are wearing a Stop Adani T-shirt does not mean a whole cohort of, you know, public servants, you know, reacting to your badge go, you are right. We shall benevolently ensure that this doesn't happen. We will just stop. I mean, come on. Yeah, we need to actually have a proper infrastructure in place and a Just Transition Authority is an important part of that. But coming to the very, very local now, you know, you talked a little bit about TAFE and I find that interesting uh, because, of course, Mary Doyle, the Labor candidate uh, for Aston, uh, is someone who, as I understand it, did go to TAFE. I worked with Mary for uh, quite some time at the ACTU. Is Mary's Good Labor union candidate. woman, our Mary. Good, Good union, union woman. woman. Uh, running in the Aston by-election. In with a real shot, it, it's... It you know it's sort of gone from long shot to actually this is a real contest. Can, can I tell everybody one of those reasons? Because I almost fell off my chair. Well, yeah, because it involves Peter Dutton's candidate. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so the candidate uh, for Aston for the Liberal Party is Rashina Campbell from Brunswick. From Brunswick, of course. Yep, of course. Um, but uh, which is interesting because I remember Peter Dutton's criticism of his opponent in the seat of Dixon, Ailey France, was that Ailey didn't live in the electorate. I believe she lived next door, but her issue was that uh, she's a woman with a um, with impaired mobility and she needed an accessible house. She couldn't afford one while she was running. She couldn't afford one in Dixon. Yeah. And Peter Dutton made a big hoo-ha about that. But Rashina Campbell of Brunswick is the candidate for Aston. And uh, she, um, shortly after Anthony Albanese became Prime Minister, she wrote a column for one of the Fairfax papers uh, questioning the usefulness of Labor's expanded childcare policy pointing out it would cost the federal budget an extra $5.4 billion. How outrageous, how absolutely outrageous to expand childcare. That's a terrible, terrible, terrible thing to do, Ben, isn't it? And the thing that's most sort of outrageous about this is the hypocrisy, right, because Sheena Campbell was, I believe, a Melbourne city councillor and while being a councillor took $30,000 of ratepayer money to support the childcare expenses that she was incurring to do her job. Now, for me, but not for thee. And that's, you know, look, I've got no issue with, and we've talked about this before, I've got no issue 
with us supporting people to do their job. I think that's good. We're very pro-childcare and we don't even have children. No, and I think, you know, public officials are doing a job and I have no issue with Rashina getting support to do her job when she was a Melbourne City Councillor. What I take issue with is that Rashina was more than happy to take taxpayer funds, be it ratepayers or whatever level of taxation you want to call it, to fund her own. And Rashina, by the way, was a barrister. This is not someone who was on a low income. Yeah, we're not describing a member of the oppressed working class, really, when it comes to our Rashina, are we? No, this is a person who... Not a good union woman, our Rashina. This is a person whose column was critical of the Albanese Labor government's expanded early childhood education policies because she believed it, it was unnecessary to support the increased range of people that it would support, mm. herself among them. But what she didn't disclose was that she was already getting support from a group of taxpayers for her childcare. But that's different. Yeah, apparently. Like it's just really different. Apparently it is. I mean, I can't really explain how it's different, but people should know it's different. It's it's really wow. I'm in a mood. I'm really pulling out the the vocal work today, aren't I? Well, it's I mean, it's a fair mood because look, it, the reason it's disgusting hypocrisy, and this person has no business being anywhere near public office. And you think? I mean, is that why it's a fair mood? Yeah, yeah that's why it's a fair I, I, mood. absolutely. And I think you know, Mary Doyle shaved what eight points off the margin when it was Alan Tudge. This uh, Rashina from Brunswick is clearly running. Peter Dutton points out, oh, well, Mary Doyle doesn't live in the state either. Mary Doyle lives in Mitcham, which is literally on the edge of that seat and the seat of Deakin. These are suburbs that are literally stones throw from each other. Anyone who's been to that part of Melbourne can tell you. A bit of a difference between Mitcham and Brunswick, isn't there, Ben? Uh, someone who has lived in the seat of Deakin uh, and has had friends live in the seat of Brunswick, let me tell you, it's quite the commute. Uh, <laughs> it certainly was before there was an Andrews Labor government. Yeah, but uh, haven't ben, done it for a while but now. Ben, will she take the free Commonwealth car if she gets elected? <laughs> well, I bet she I will. Bet she will too. I bet she will. I bet she takes all of it. I bet, I bet she campaigns. Just like this is a prediction. I mean, what evidence do I have to suggest this apart from decades of Liberal Party policy? But what's the bet she campaigns against? better quality public transport for all at the same time she takes a Commonwealth car, Rashina. Yeah. Given the fact she's campaigned against greater childcare opportunity while she was taking the childcare subsidy. I just love it. Like I absolutely love it. It's like when they talk about, you know, the horrible inner city elite, the horrible inner city elites. You know, there's people with arts degrees who go to parties we're not invited to and look down their noses at us. And where do you live, love? Oh, Brunswick. Yeah. Yeah. You just pour scorn on those elites, you barrister. Shout out to all of our listeners in Brunswick. Uh, we hope- we love you, but we also know who you are. <laughs> Look, I, one of the other reasons I wanted to raise it is that the AEC is saying that they are a little concerned that turnout might be down on 2022's uh, general election, and it's really, really important. It, it is obviously we've talked before on the show, Van, about how uh, having a, a compulsory system of voting and preferential voting is one of the safeguards of our democracy. There's always a downturn in by-elections. People don't know it's on. It's not as publicly uh, talked about. There's not as much media intention and all the rest of it. 
If you know someone who is in Aston or you are in Aston or you have somebody who you think might be in Aston, tell them to vote. It is on the 1st of April. <laughs> they put a by-election on April Fool's Day. I will never know, but you can vote now. Early voting is open. So get along, vote, cast your vote for Mary Doyle. Good union, uh, good union woman, Mary Doyle, who absolutely embodies the very best values of the Labor movement and the Labor Party. Speaking of embodying values, Van, we need to talk about some Liberal MPs and their demonstration of values in Parliament House yesterday, because quite frankly, I think it's even more disgusting than the hypocrisy of Rashina from Brunswick. Is it? Is it? Is it? I, well, I think it is because it involves it involves it involves something that neither of you, neither you nor myself, think is acceptable, which puts us in stark moral contrast to the Liberal Party of Australia. In that, you and I do not believe that any worker should go home injured from work. Absolutely, and you know, wait for it. I never wait for it, everyone. I never thought I would say this about any of the major political parties, maybe some of the fringe elements, I would end up having to say this. But I I haven't even said it about them before. But there have been six MPs try to flee, try to flee the parliamentary chamber of the House of Representatives when after the Speaker had called for the doors to be locked in order for a vote to be counted. Now, parliamentary procedure is very clear. The Speaker calls for the bells to be rung for a set period of time so that MPs can come to the House or leave the House before casting a vote. Then a vote is cast, the House is divided, the votes are counted, it passes or fails, right? That's basic parliamentary procedure. This has been in place for a long time. The doors are locked so that there can't be any manipulation of the vote. Somebody goes in one, goes out one door, comes in another door, that sort of, you know, shenanigan-y type behaviour. We haven't seen it in this country, but some hundreds of years ago when the Westminster system was started in Westminster, that kind of shenanigans was, you know, expected. Now, the ceremony of locking the doors, you know, well, it's, I never thought I would have to say this. What was considered a ceremonial... <laughs> ceremonial um, convention of locking the doors turned into a violent farce when six MPs pushed past and injured, injured one of the workers at Parliament House after the Speaker had called for the doors to be locked. And I'm going to name these MPs because they've had to stand up today in Parliament and publicly apologise and they should be shamed. And, And quite frankly... You know, there should be some means of redress because this worker was injured. I don't know how seriously this worker was injured. I hope it wasn't very seriously, but apparently they they did injure their arm. So the MPs were Dan Tehan, Angus Taylor. Oh, Angus Taylor, what a surprise. Andrew Hasty. Again, what a surprise. So apparently Andrew Hasty physically pushed this person who then hit the door frame and hurt their arm. This is, I mean, you know, uh, there are more. Ted O'Brien, Zoe McKenzie, Lou O'Brien, and Sam Birrell. 
I don't know how many O'Briens there are in the Liberal Party, but given there's so also many. a Michael O'Brien in Victoria, it just strikes me as as very strange. Sneezy O'Brien. <laughs> these are Polcat O'Brien. These are supposed to be people <sighs> representing constituents, representing a set of values. But Ben, I mean, to be perfectly honest, we've been here before. Remember when Christopher Pine and Joe Hockey remember them? Everybody, does anybody remember them? physically chased Julia Gillard, the Prime Minister of this country at the time, down the hallways of Parliament House berating her. Like you see the argy-bargy and the nonsense, like it's just, it's really. But, but Van, I mean, even that, and as, as, as reprehensible as that was and as, as misogynistic and gender-based as that was. They didn't biff a parliamentary worker on. For like Andrew Hasty to push, as I understand it, a woman who works at Parliament House into a door frame and injure their arm is I, I can't believe that he had the gall to show up the and and continue to participate in, in in this sitting of parliament. It is it is just beyond reprehensible. No worker, no worker in any workplace should be injured at work. That is a fundamental principle of us as trade unionists, of the Australian trade union movement, another reason you should join your union, australianunions.org.au slash wow. And by the way, if you are a worker in parliament, there is a union for you. And I certainly hope this person was a member because it sounds to me like they would have a genuine claim for workplace injury, given that a member of parliament is being captured. There is footage of them pushing them into a doorframe. I mean- what kind of party is this? This is the, the great party of Menzies and 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 Fraser and Howard. Six people in a mad rush to avoid having to cast their vote. That's what it was about. I don't know what the issue was. I want, I want people to get their heads around what happens in these sort of parliamentary shenanigans, right? Because a lot of this, a lot of this behaviour more recently is absolutely tailored to the social media audience as well yeah. and a bit of political misinformation making. And it, it's this thing where it is vitally important that you're not associated with the vote or you are associated with the vote that will reflect on you. So, for example, um, there's a parliamentary vote on uh, whether to, and this is a favourite private member's bill, we should just raise the rate of um of the dollar immediately by yeah. eight hundred bucks. I mean, leaving aside that that's got to go through like a million different kind of budgetary considerations and the rest of it. Um, you know, it's got to be you know this insistence. It's got to be this amount, whatever. You will have responsible adult political parties vote against it, and then get a public haircut on social media where a, a position that was untenable, not really practical, could never get up. You know, it might be absolutely correct in value. Should welfare be raised in this country? Yes, I absolutely believe that it should. Would mm. I put an amount on that? No, I wouldn't um, because it's more complex than that. Mm. You know, mm. are there trade-offs to do with childcare or educational opportunity? Like it's, it should be complicated. It yeah. should be individuated. People are in individual circumstances and how we process that collectively is a very difficult challenge. And we should have a complex economy. As and we, we should have earlier. a complex economy. And funnily enough, the problems are not simple, so the answers are not simple either. Amazing. What a coincidence. But, like, the the issue is that 
that that private members bill, and because this has happened a lot recently, yeah. the private members bill gets put on the floor. Adults vote against it because it's impractical, and then social media is like, I can't believe the Labor Party voted against welfare, and no one's really paying attention. Everybody's got the concentration span of a dog biscuit and going, oh. Why do they do that? Like, I don't understand why that's happening. That's really bad. We had it with Peter Dutton putting up a motion the other day saying that, oh, we should ban, um, you know, Nazi symbols, except it wasn't entirely clear if those Nazi symbols were swastikas and sonorags and the things that we typically associate, not to mention the problems mm. that we get into with the traditional depiction of a swastika in various Eastern religions mm. and places of worship. Like, it's not... It, these things are not simple. Nothing's is, ever simple. Which is why states like uh, Queensland and Victoria have gone through lengthy processes in order to actually bring in those laws. They're not simple motions of the parliament. No, but the point is so the adults in the room, but in this case the Labour Party, go, yeah, no, that we have not seen this. We don't know what the detail is. Is it because you know with the Liberals they're probably going to demand that hammers and sickles and red stars and those kind of things, oh, well, you know, these represented totalitarianism, whatever, there's going to be some spurious yeah. argument made because why would you trust the Liberal Party on anything, on literally anything? Um, and. Hi, more redeeming. How are you? Um, and and but then on social media it was like, why did Labor vote against this? Why is this happening? And because of the way these politics get transacted, you can imagine Hasty and those guys who are in the room, a vote's coming up that they don't want to be seen to be voting against, but they don't want to go through. Well, you never know what the actual yeah. procedure is going to be about. And it's been interesting in the way this story has been covered. It's been almost impossible to find out what they were yeah. actually trying to flee. But this is the kind of shenanigan business that goes on all the time. And I worry it's going to get worse as people's attention spans get shorter and shorter mm. and, like, internet rumours substitute for considered mature adult consideration of policy. It's it's a problem because we just get more, like, the, obviously you just see what goes on in America with just gestural nonsense all the time, yeah. which is just, like, the perpetual distraction machine of American politics where all the Republicans have is this culture war Nonsense. Mm. I have no economic values to run on anymore, no military, no social, just culture, 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 nuttery. And, I mean, that's why, you know, we're continuing <sighs> to do the week on Wednesday and, and you know, why we led this episode talking about inflation and talking about a just transition authority and talking about the the policy hypocrisy around the Aston by-election. There's lots of different things that we could talk about on this podcast. And I did recommend a book I like. Yeah, yeah, and that's fine too. We do a bit of that too. I, I do recommend well, a book Of course I we like. do. It's, you know, book. it's our podcast. Um, you know, but these newsrooms do need to cover these things comprehensively uh, and it is a problem with the boss's pamphlet. It is a problem with the billionaire-owned media that they don't do that very well anymore. Billionaire-owned social media platform. Absolutely. And, look, thankfully there are lots of people who continue to support, um, you know, The Guardian, uh, the ABC, although I know there's, I've had some criticism about the ABC coming to our inbox recently too, but, you know, the, there are good people trying to do good work in the independent, independent media space, the New Daily, um, Socially Democratic is a, is a podcast we like to recommend to people as well. There is stuff out there that people can access uh, and obviously like, share. This podcast will always be free to uh this podcast will always be free to listen and download. And thankfully, we do have some people who do support 
this podcast reaching an ever bigger audience. That was a beautiful segue, Ben. Uh, that was beautiful. <laughs> thank you very much. Even the dog was impressed looking. Thank you very much uh, because, you know, we are rapidly hitting that 800,000 download mark. It's just blows my mind every When time, we hit so. a million, we'll have a party. <laughs> we'll have a week on Wednesday party. Let's do it. So for the people who chip in, you know, even just once off, people who chip in a buck a week, our Extend the Reach supporters who chip in $10, $10 a month, our cadre chip in 20 We like to acknowledge our cadre and our Extend the Reach because you have helped us bring these messages to more and more people and give them an opportunity to engage with some of this stuff and talk through these issues in their workplace, with their family members, with their communities. So, Van, have you got our cadre there? <laughs> you ready? Go for it. Steph, Karina Bali, at Jane C. Campbell, Leona Gibbons, Shane Horsfall, Ali Vance, Mary M. Love Your Work, Yeet Yeti, at Ennie Bailden, Claire, Jason Dallas, Camille, Akivra Boris, Kristen Sakluna, Gabe Kramer, Stephen Aiken, Trish Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona McNeil, Giota, Jed Carney, Kristen Cole, Tamara James, Bromwin, Punchunk Veteran, Jenny Forster, Seven, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, No Twitter for Me, Hannah Honda, Matt Bush, Richard Sands, Glenn Robbie, Fresh Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Linda Cutright, Leanne Shingles, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, Akari Nash 20, Billy Three McCabe, Nurse Simon, at Cadigal, Lauren Ash and Banjo, Matthew Hadley, Naranga Man, John Shuppen, Peter Barth, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, aka Red, White, and Blue Lou. Our Extend the Reach supporters are Helen, Sanj Kelly, Dorena, Kathy Hay, Donald Vaughan, Damien Marley, Michelle Norton, Rodney Slap, Cameron Trodragon, Daniel Crazy, Keza, John DeHaan, Ange Fennell, Anna Uren, at Ross Kenner 888, Kathy Burgess, Kirsten Black, Melanie Denning, Jody A, Penelope Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, at Knot, Didams, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Reverse, Someone, Vita W, Tanya George, Nandita Hannum, Maury Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett Graham, Oxley Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Honan, Gal Vest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah, Eliana, and Andrew I. Billet, Andrew Bryan, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Kip Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward, The Real Neville Longbody, Sandy Baumgart, not Sandy B., Renee McGee, Stuart Munn, Balgoya Kalinsev, Matthew Case, Marky Mark, Atten Bet, Adrian Valente, Maritza, at Carriedale 68, Frank Nahus, Erica Pizzuti, Joe Lapino, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur, and Pauline Bates. A huge congratulations to all of you for making this show such a success. If you're listening to The Week on Wednesday for the first time or perhaps you haven't heard me spruik it before, you can become a supporter at buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. We do email out every episode along with links to interesting articles, particularly those written by Van. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And some social media posts that have more information about the stories we talk about. And you do tend to get that before people get access to the uh, episode otherwise. But the episodes will always be free to listen to and download. And speaking of social media, unfortunately, that upsurge of Nazi and turf behaviour in this country at the moment has led to me just getting harassed to death on various social media platforms. So if you or someone you know has been blocked by me, it's not actually me, it's an algorithm where a bunch of keywords just pull things mm. out of my feed because I'm actually having a really tough time and, yeah, like literally thousands of posts a day and it's all getting a bit much. Yes. So So I apologize if you've been swept up in that. I know somebody was today, but please understand like I do my best to be accessible to everybody except Nazi turfs and just horrible evil wackos really. I don't want them in my life no. and I've got to use algorithms. I can't look at it or I'd end up in a small room crying. Yeah, there's way too many uh native uh trolls and just absolutely Thank you Elon terrible, terrible people uh, doing the wrong thing. And sometimes that does uh, catch, uh, you know, the tools that we have to use do catch um, people who- Innocent bystanders. Who are innocent bystanders. 
Uh, you can reach out to us via our supporter page uh, if you think that that has happened to you or someone you know. Uh, uh, you know, we do have to keep ourselves safe and we do encourage everyone to keep yourself safe because... Especially even, me because I'm small. That's right. Because even in our houses of parliament, <laughs> workers are not safe. Yeah, no. From the abuses <laughs> of the ruling class. Oh, my God. And on that happy note, <laughs> I, I want to say there is a good news story very quickly um, that there are... There are... <laughs> Get it out, Ben. The great desert skink is a threatened species with significance to Aboriginal communities. The Mulamiji the March project is aiming to manage the threat to the species. These are threats of fire and feral cats. 15 Indigenous ranger groups from across the Northern Territory, Western Australia and South Australia, plus experts from the National Environmental Science Program, Resilient Landscapes Hub, quite the mouthful, are working together to bring the best of science and traditional owner knowledge to make sure that this uh, particular great desert skink is saved and protected. We fully support that. That's the good news. We're going to end on that note today. Uh, Until next time. Go desert skink. Go desert skink. Love you, Vanny. Love you too. Bye. Bye.